Hello and welcome to the Native and the Transplant. I'm your Native, Alex Johnson. And I'm your Transplant, Jen Bryant. Jen, another week? Yeah. Another episode? How are you? Doing good. It's been, I mean, it's Sunday, so (laughs) weekend's almost over. I'm not sure if I'm thrilled about that yet. (laughs) Yes, this one's a little bit late coming to you because we had to make sure that our schedule's lined up because we have... uh, wonderful guest with us today uh, and it's actually the first time that we have a repeat guest so mr john mark patterson is in the house welcome john how are you I, i'm doing great i had no idea what an honor this was it's <laughs> great to sit down with you two again and, and catch up yes this is it's been over 18 months since you were last with us deep in covid winter i believe yeah. <laughs> yeah. very much so uh so a couple of things that we're going to be talking about today is going to be uh dealing with the overall city uh, loveland city uh homeless encampments um a couple of the other things is going to be thompson school district where they are raising some eyebrows right now um based off of everything that they're doing with trans and non- non-binary and whether or not parents will be involved in in their decision we're going to also reach into student loans. That's obviously top of mind right now. And then we're going to wrap it up with some election news. So um, I figured let's go ahead and get started. Yeah, so, let's get to it. John Mark, normally we ask, are you a native or are you a transplant? Since this is your second time here, why don't you give us just a, a brief synopsis? Um, and again, if you want to hear the first uh, episode with John Mark, that was at the beginning of 2021, if you can believe it. I gave you a very complicated answer the first time you asked, Alex. So you did. <laughs> for the benefit of those who weren't bored by it the first time, I'll, I'll try to make it a clear and a little shorter. Um, I'm not a native because I wasn't born here, but my dad was born here in uh, right next to where the Black Steer is today. And my grandmother was born here before him, and my great-grandmother came here as a little baby in 1891. So... But I got to be born at what used to be Andrews Air Force Base, now Joint Base Andrews, just outside of Washington, D.C., because my father was uh, serving in the Marine Corps and stationed at 8th and I Marine Corps Barracks, Washington, D.C. Wow. There you go. I'm not a native, <laughs> but I kind of feel like one. So. I think that that qualifies as native status, though, honestly, because especially with military service and, you know, your dad, it's not like this wouldn't have been your home base. A big Thompson Elementary School graduate, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The most illustrious graduate. I, I like that going back to elementary school. I always, uh, I'm not sure if I even talked about this the first time that you said that, right. but there was the, the one NFL player that everybody talks about the school that they played at. And oh, yeah. he would always talk about his elementary school because it was the only school he was proud to represent. Oh, that's- <laughs> <laughs> this was a few years back, but it was a, always a good time because he would come out and he'd be like, you know, blank, blank, uh, elementary school. Well, I like that. I mean, I'm not sure the highlight of my life was making placemats for the chili supper, but I had some good memories at Big Thompson and, and the other schools I went to here in Loveland. So that's great. Yeah, they, you, do you know that like the first week of school they were evacuated because of potential flooding? Oh, I, I kind of heard that. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We were. It was surprising. I mean, of course, we're going to have a lot of flash floods with the burn scar, but it was it definitely. And they're a little quick. quicker to to do that these days, which is probably good. But, I think uh, so. Yeah, I think so. In my day, it was mountain lion on the playground. Eh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they can stay inside for a little while. Uh, so. Okay. <laughs> well, let's dive right into the first one uh, that's causing an awful lot of contention, I guess would be the best word to use, in Loveland is dealing with the new encampment for the homeless, but it also coincides with the camping ban. So they camping ban has been in effect, but not really in effect because they don't know where to put everybody. And so now Loveland has 
And we spoke a little bit to this last week uh, on the last episode. Loveland has allocated about $500,000 to build a encampment, but they've kind of done all of this without actually listening to any of the citizens. So, and John Mark, I know that you were at the meetings when they finally said, okay, we'll have a, a public hearing about this. Take us through this. Yeah, it's, it's, and I think we could talk anecdotally about some of the experience that I know Jen's had some harrowing stories, and I've got some from my office in my neighborhood and mm-hmm. from close friends of the sorts of encounters that we're having on the streets. And it's heartbreaking, but it's also kind of scary. Um, but to get to your question, Alex, back in May, the city passed an emergency ban on camping in public, and that was largely in pressure, uh, in response to proper pressure from landowners and business owners near the King's Crossing area on South 287. So if you know where I mean, it's just south of the mm-hmm. Big Thompson River, roughly uh, 10th Street, uh, southeast over there. And those businesses were under tremendous pressure of vandalism, uh, witnessing assaults, attacks on people, um, theft, and some really unhygienic and dangerous practices that were taking place with scores and scores of campers illegally in the public land there. Um, and, of course, we used to walk to the farmer's market from our house downtown through the, the path, the bike hike trail that goes down by the river, then curves uh, underneath 287 to the old fairgrounds. And that was kind of a no-go zone with campers on either side of that path, uh, some strange things. So the city responded by banning public camping, but it got the legal advice thanks to the Martin v. Boise decision in the Ninth Circuit that has been cited by some courts in our neck of the woods. Um, That decision said it was cruel and unusual punishment to remove people from camping illegally in public if the municipality did not have an alternative, a shelter alternative for them. Mm -hmm. So if there's no shelter space and no safe space to to store their belongings, there's a new constitutional right that says that's cruel and unusual punishment. And I know there was a case in Fort Collins where a a district court judge up there cited this case to say, city, you can't cite somebody for camping and parking his vehicle and camping illegally on your on your property. And so the city, in a rush, um, in response to this pressure, passed this ban and then got the advice they have to put up a permanent shelter to offer shelter to these people and protect their valuables if they remove them from camping. And so um, the staff went into overdrive and Public Works cleared a site, and um, we'll go into that in a minute. And um, If I can pause you for just one brief second, one sure. thing that I forgot to do was, if you wouldn't mind just giving a little bit of your background um, and <laughs> what you do for well, a living. Everybody hasn't listened to that first episode. <laughs> maybe, no, I, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> I live in downtown Loveland. Um, my Yeah, I live right in the heart of downtown Loveland. My office is also downtown, four and a half blocks away, so I finally figured out my commute. <laughs> um, I'm a I'm a provincial lawyer. I help people structure businesses and deal with real estate matters and buy and sell businesses, and I counsel them about estate planning and probate. So yeah, I spend a lot of time helping people build things up and protect them, protect what they built, and take care of their families, that sort of thing. Awesome. Uh, got, got three children still living in the house. Three of them out of the house. So <laughs> we do care about what happens on the streets when we have some of these encounters. It's it's more. It's even more concerned because I'm often walking with a soon-to-be four-year-old and a and a new kindergartner on the streets. So. Yeah. 
<clears throat> you got your kids right there with you. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Thank you for background there. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to, to clarify. But I care um, about downtown. You know, I serve. Yeah. Uh, my opinions are my own here today, but I serve on the Downtown Development Authority Board, and I used to chair the Historic Preservation Commission, and just feel very strongly about our hometown and and uh, protecting it and balancing the interests of people. So it's a good place. Awesome. So yeah, let's again. Pardon my interruption, but I just thought that was good information to actually have out there for our listeners. Sure. Um, why don't you dive right into what they have now proposed as far as where to build this mm-hmm. encampment or build this shelter and why it's causing so many issues, not only the overall location, but also the manner in which they went about doing it. Yeah, I think before I delve into those details again, I just suggest three different ways to think about these issues. One is, is having this city-sponsored homeless camp a good idea in general? Is this really going to solve a problem? Is it really the right response? No matter how you feel about that, if that decision is made and it's going to happen, the next question is, well, where's the right location for it? Right. What are the pros and cons of picking different locations? What are the maybe obvious costs and benefits, but then what are the sort of hidden costs and benefits that may or may not have been considered by picking a particular site? And the third part to think about, I think, would be the process that was taken. Whether something's a good idea or not, in the long run, shouldn't the community have been involved in making these decisions? Shouldn't there be a good process to agree on uh, what the decision would be? So to go back into the weeds a little bit, on July 26, um, Deputy City Manager Rod Wensing presented different proposals to the City Council based on their direction, and... One possibility was to actually build pallet homes like they do in some of these homeless encampments in San Francisco. Another was to use modular buildings to house uh, uh, homeless and transients. And the other was to use FEMA tents, and that's the option the city picked. So they settled on an option that will have modular buildings for city offices, modular building for showers, Mm -hmm. and a modular building for toilets and then a series of FEMA tents. At the same time they did this, the city um, decided not to renew its relationship with the House and Neighborly Service for the, shelter, the day shelter that's at 137 South Lincoln okay. and took it over to run directly with city personnel. And it took them some time to gear up there, but they've now turned that into a city-run overnight shelter, and they're planning on putting some FEMA tents behind that site as well. Are they seriously? Oh, that's, that's all in place now. So, yeah. I, I, that is incredibly frustrating. I mean, we I already have so much traffic in my neighborhood from there. I mean, I'm right down the street from there. So it's like we already have an, more traffic than I can even describe. Like it's – I'm – that really makes me angry. Okay. Okay. Well, that is there now. And yeah. So I, I sort of learned about this and um, noted that the area that was being considered is 3rd Street – well – Maybe my verb tense is wrong. I think it's a done deal, but we can go into that. Third Street, Southeast, and Railroad Avenue, which is sometimes hard to explain, but when you go south of First Street, the streets start renumbering again. Mm-hmm. So think of being at First Street and Railroad and go two blocks south, and then the road railroad itself curves off to the west next to the railroad tracks and goes down on the west side of the old fairgrounds. Mm-hmm. There's a little knoll there, about three acres which was the city's wastewater treatment plant location until 1962. So it's a little bit of high ground 
right there, and it looks right down into into two softball fields. Yeah. yeah. And then to the parking lot that's on the north side of Fairgrounds Park. And as you might recall, that that parking lot, until recently cleared by the city, had some real Walter White-looking <laughs> RVs oh, yeah. that had yeah, been yeah. there for quite a while and yeah, just interesting so, behavior going on down there. Very um, eloquent way of putting it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but but yeah. that's the site. And um, when I heard about this, um, I started asking people to ask Steve Adams, what's going on next? What's the process here? We found out that there was a neighborhood meeting scheduled. And that neighborhood meeting meant that only people within – property owners within 500 feet of this site got notice of the plan. So 12 people. Well, I mean if you draw the radius the right mm-hmm. way, it's almost – it's the city and just a couple of other people probably because the city owns three acres there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talked to people who live south of First Street or work south of First Street and they did not receive notice about this meeting. So I try to be a polite guy, but um, I kind of let some people know other downtown mm-hmm. property owners, and we gently crashed the meeting at the library and kind of filled the room to capacity. <laughs> Excellent. And, well, you know, try not to be a rabble rouser, but it felt like this was just being sneaked right through. And so we asked a lot of questions. Why this location? Do you have any idea of the composition of the homeless population you're dealing with? How many of them are chronically homeless people we've known for a long time and helped for a long time who are from our community? How many of them are people going through a tough transition mm-hmm. but you know, never expected they'd be homeless, but with, a, with some nudge and support, we can get them back on their feet? Yeah. How many are recent arrivals, though, from out of town? How many have serious mental health issues? How many have serious substance abuse issues? And the troubling thing for the people in that room was that the senior staff just didn't have any answers to these questions. Of course not. And, and even said – and I, I sympathize with them. They were kind of told to do this post-haste and figure it out and get it moving so we can do something. But the public wasn't really invited to be part of the process. Well, in the wake of this, the city – this was August 10th when yeah. this happened. The, the yeah. city said, all right, there's a lot of controversy here. We're going to have what we'll call a town hall at the Rialto, and that was on August 24th. So that, that just happened. And that the Rialto was fairly full and – they took a lot of questions, and yet the whole thing seemed kind of futile because it was a done deal. We learned that they'd already allocated the full half a million dollars. They'd already decided on this site. They have the modulars leased. They have the tents ready to go, two of them already in place behind 137 South Lincoln. Yeah. And then at least four more scheduled for this site. So as an advocate of downtown, I don't think downtown should necessarily be the focal point for all these service issues. I think a more removed spot where services could be brought to a location that's more secure would make a lot more sense. Um, this is literally – and this is right in the center of town. Yeah, yeah. One concern I've had for years and worked with is to – worked in many committees and settings is to help have more non-traditional transportation options downtown. Let's think about the pedestrian experience downtown. Let's think about bikes downtown. And then let's think of downtown not just as a – hermetically sealed unit in the center of town, but something vital and growing that it needs better connections to the rest of town. We put all this programming. We just had the corn roast. We put all this programming down at Fairgrounds Park. We have massive softball and baseball tournaments down at Barnes Park, and yet there's no good route for people to walk from downtown to these recreational opportunities close by. We would take the long way to go to the farmer's market from our neighborhood, but it's pretty tough to push a stroller down Lincoln or Cleveland or even Railroad Avenue. Yeah. And I thought Railroad Avenue was the natural place 
to rethink our infrastructure, to have this better path, to have better lighting, to enhance the vitality of both fairgrounds and Barnes Parks and a, a increasingly appealing downtown, you know, and have the, a good synergy and then people comfortable walking there and, and, and going back and forth. Well, and, and now we're going to put a giant homeless camp right in the middle of this uh, yeah. this key spot, this nexus. Right. So, Well, it's interesting because railroad was massively hit by the flood. Uh, the overall run, uh, road of railroad drive, is it Drive Street? Avenue. At railroad Avenue. Thank you. Uh, back in 2013, so that would have been September 12th of 2013 when the Big Thompson flooded, railroad was taken out and it was essentially closed for almost 18 months. Yeah. And at that point in time, when people were talking about, okay, how are we going to rebuild railroad? What are our thoughts on this? There was quite a few people that had put forward ideas of making it more of a walking path, more of a, a bike friendly or pedestrian friendly walkway. And they had the money to be able to do it and they chose not to. It's a lost opportunity, but we keep throwing away opportunities, and I, I just – I feel like this is yet another example of a mistake, and that's just one aspect of why it's a mistake. So on the meeting on the 24th, um, what was the consensus in the room? Were people just as frustrated as you might have been uh, with the fact that, okay, yeah, you called the town hall, but the town hall didn't really – accomplish anything they weren't ready to hear any voices and it was kind of a okay you can speak but we aren't going to listen to you i don't think the staff was rude at all at that meeting i think they were backpedaling and trying to do some damage control and trying to genuinely hear some feedback but the problem is the decision had already been made and so some of the criticism at that meeting was you really you didn't listen to us this is you're just trying to fill in the gaps after the fact and you've already decided what you're going to do I think another element of the criticism there was the concern that the assumptions behind this plan are not accurate about the nature of the the transient community that we're dealing with. Yeah, the demographic of who they're made up of. I mean, I've, I've had very cordial conversations with Mayor Marsh, whom I've always gotten along with, and from the day I first walked into her shop on 4th Street, I think she's a caring person and um, does her best for the city, but we have a very strong, cordial difference of opinion. I think um, Mayor Marsh believes that the homeless problem is essentially a affordable housing problem, that the population we're dealing with are people who are from here, who are struggling, who can't afford the rent, and can't afford to um, be homeowners here. Now, I respect that concern. I think it is a huge issue, um, and I would frankly like and ready to do more work in the city in terms of grassroots changing of our development code, making it easier to build ADUs, mm -hmm. filling in the missing middle and housing between single family and, and subsidized developer large multi-unit projects. But that the behavior I'm seeing on the streets is not my neighbors falling on hard times. It's yeah. people who have moved here, scores of them who have moved here and who exhibit increasingly deranged and dangerous behavior on the streets. Mm -hmm. um, at my office the other day, my employee was quite terrified to see what she saw outside of her window, and so I went out to check on it. And there was a woman leaning her bike up against our office and throwing down a bag of her gear. Her hair was shaved almost to the scalp, and she had ring, heavy, heavy rings of eyeliner traced around her eyes, and she was smoking furiously. And I went up to her and said, 
what can I do to help you? Mm-hmm. And she, <clears throat> she stared at me and said, I'm changing. In, in front of my office. Yeah. And I said, all right, I will respect that and give you your privacy, but I'm going to come back in a couple of minutes. And I either need to know from you what we can do to get you help or I'll expect you have moved on. Well, I came back in a couple of minutes and had a pretty unpleasant mess to clean up. Yeah. And that's just one story. And my neighbors have stories that I hesitate to even repeat here of the kind of behavior that we see on the streets. I don't think encouraging more of that kind of migration to Loveland is going to be helpful. And I think the idea that we just have people who need a little bit of help and this problem's going to go away, I'm worried that the next discussion we're going to have is, well, where do we build the next even bigger camp to accommodate the problems that we've decided to accommodate here? Or, or even safe injection sites. Yeah. I'm not going to talk about the <laughs> needles that I found in the pickets of my fence where I live. Or You, yeah. you know the stories, Jen. I but, do, uh, and I find them all the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting that they're doing this as at the same time that city of Loveland is announcing that they're going to be increasing their overall utility bills over the next year. So it seems to be a compounding problem that the city of Loveland, this is going back to almost every single problem that the city has had over the last two years, where instead of being proactive, they're being reactive and they're trying to do the bare minimum to react to an issue or react to a situation, and they aren't going through the entire steps necessary to be able to actually come to a a beneficial solution for not only the homeless, but also the residents and the business owners, and trying to make it cohesive. And am I wrong in my thought process on that? Well, it does feel like we're on our heels all the time, uh, racing for the next blow and not anticipating it at all. I have to say I have some sympathy for the city council that has to try to hear all these conflicting opinions and chart a path and take legal advice and take practical advice. Um, and I have sympathy for the staff, but I also think some of the presumptions they're working with just aren't true about what's really happening on our streets. So I, I think this is going to have unintended consequences that have not been discussed, that have not been brought to the attention of decision makers, and letting people complain after the fact doesn't fix the problem. Now, I made it sound like everybody at the Rialto was against this. That's not really true. I mean, they, there was a group of uh, people. I'm trying to remember the name. They they gave the name of the group. It was um, Colorado. <coughs> so, I, but I looked them up. They're a Denver-based group, and they had several representatives there. And the tone there was, "How can we be so heartless as not help the least among us?" Which, of course, t- tugs at my heartstrings a little bit. But I think is also fundamentally unfair because <laughs> we can talk about the plight of the person on the street. And and really hope they get help. But when we see this kind of behavior, we eventually have to be ready to say someone has to be arrested or institutionalized for their own good. And because the purpose of public order isn't just to protect the homeless. Right. It's also to protect the others, including some other vulnerable populations. I mean, every time I hear another young parent say, I just don't go to the library anymore. Yeah. You know, or – we, we're just we're scared to go downtown. The fairgrounds are out of control. I think – see, these are the things you're not hearing, city council. I mean you can, you can see – here. oh, here's the cost of putting up the camp, and it seems like the simplest alternative right now. 
and here's how we help these people. But silently, silently, thousands of decisions are being made to not go downtown, to not invest in Loveland, to not bring the softball tournament here, mm-hmm. to not stay at the our great new hotel that's on Second Street. All those quiet decisions, you'll, you'll never hear about them. And those are real costs to our community. <laughs> it's kind of the insidious things that are happening that that people are saying to each other, but they're the, like you said, the council's not hearing it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I understand that they have. It's interesting the legality piece of that, right? Like you have to have somewhere if you're going to ban camping, then you have to have somewhere for them to stay. But I very poorly, very poorly thought out. Well, you heard me say it before. I mean, it's not like it's a choice between private compassion and public order. Yeah, you have to have both. And, you know, a society that only has one loses the other eventually. Well, it's true. A a perfect example of that is San Francisco, where just even over the weekend with everything that has gone on within San Francisco and their homeless problem is now a lot of the business owners have gotten together and have flat out told the city council in San Francisco, if you don't clean up the streets, we aren't paying taxes anymore. I'm afraid that some ultimatums have to be given sometimes if if the city doesn't stand up to its basic duty to enforce public order. So what do you think the ultimate, is this a done deal? Is this going to be moving ahead um, like they've already planned it? Is there any pause, any moment of pause on this decision or? No, no, but a slightly new tone from the city was to emphasize that this was temporary, which is the first time we'd heard that. Um, I know one speaker made a point of saying his experience in another town was that the temporary camp that was put up six years ago is still in the same spot and bigger than ever. No, but just add another tent or two. Well, I, I just think it's going to happen. So we have to just watch and see, and I will tell you on the record, I hope I'm wrong. I mean, I hope this cleans up the problem and the streets are so much better and people find help. I honestly would love, but I, I can't, I don't believe that's true, so I'm not going to try to fool myself into thinking it is true. So let's hope I'm wrong, but if I'm partly right and some of these unexpected, unintended Mm -hmm. consequences actually manifest, we have to go back to the city and say, you got to rethink this. Yeah, time to fix it. Right. If you're under pressure to do it, we get it. We didn't like the process, but that doesn't mean, you know, we can't revisit this once we see how it plays out. Mm Mm-hmm. Time for more community involvement. Always. (laughs) So one of the other things that we want to talk about with community involvement is what's happening within Thompson R2J as far as the overall Thompson School District. We've reported on this as far as when everything came out in Pooter School District as far as the teacher that was essentially grooming a child into an after-school, what was supposed to be an art club Mm -hmm. that ended up being a LGBTQ awareness club and so this is something that has been starting to impact northern colorado we even just had everything that happened within wellington as well and so you had actually uh, brought to my attention some of the stuff that thompson school district is doing dealing with trans non-binary and the fact that they have put it in their paperwork that they don't have to get parents involved yeah, I hate to be such a lightning rod as former Big Thompson Elementary School graduate here. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm Big Thompson Elementary School graduate, graduate for life, right? Not former. But, um, yeah, that was an interesting case in Wellington. Um, and so I as I actually taught high school history. I don't know if you know that for five years. And my, my mother was a 
a Thompson School District teacher, and my grandfather is actually assistant superintendent in oh. this district. Um, and he's the one that people get mad at because they say, why did you draw the line at Trilby Road? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Fort Collins. Well, it was between two farms back then. I mean, we didn't have much, <laughs> much Fort Collins south of Trilby Road. But all that said, I thought, well, I, I need to look and see what what the trends are here in the Thompson School District. And so I actually have in front of me what I printed off from their website. These are the guidelines regarding the support of students and staff who are transgender and or gender nonconforming. And this is something we'll put in our show notes. Uh, so if you want to look at these documents, you'll be able to. And this document also references other documents that are available. And those documents are the gender transition plan that school personnel can use for minor uh, children who are students in the district. And there is also a gender support plan. The thing that concerns me here, I, I've got a lot of room for compassion for a wide variety of people. And sometimes I think our current mania for gender fluidity and, and um, issues of transgenderism really reflects a failure of imagination. I mean, I've always thought there were a wide range of boys and a wide range of girls, and they should be supported in their individual expressions of, of who they are. But they also need some understanding that the crazy emotions of being 12, 13, 14 years old come and go. And adults have to have enough backbone to say, you're going through it, but there's a path on the other side. The rest of us have done it. There is an objective reality out there. It's not entirely in your head. You'll get through it, and there'll be room for you in the world, and we'll support you and help you out. It seems now we're in such a hurry to put children in a different pigeonhole. Like if you don't express your... Um, personality in the way we think is normal for a male or a female, we're going to decide that you should change your identity. I don't understand that. But the thing I find chilling about this is not that it says we're going to have a wide variety of children, we're going to work with parents to support them, we're going to support them as a community. It says quite explicitly that whatever, I should read it out, read it, right? The school shall accept the gender identity that each student asserts. And there is no medical or mental health diagnosis or treatment threshold that students must meet in order to have their gender identity recognized and respected. Students ready to socially transition may initiate a process at the school to change their name, pronoun, and access to programs, activities, and facilities consistent with their gender identity. The point of this is it doesn't matter what anybody thinks but the student. And I think it's a cruel thing to expect a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old to make all these decisions in a vacuum, mm -hmm. especially in a world with all kinds of strange pressures uh, to be novel, to stand out, to be different, to find an identity outside of your family, outside of your community. That's kind of a cruel thing to put all that on the child and then to say, whatever your whim is that day, we will support it. There's an absolute right for the student to express it and do what the student pleases. And if you read deeper into the support plans that are also on the website, you see that one of the questions asked is, well, do the parents support or parents or guardians support or affirm this gender choice or this plan? If the answer is no, the plan invites those making the plan to come up with ways to still support the student's choice without the involvement of parents or guardians and to identify other adults or teachers or peers who will support this and to keep absolutely confidential 
from the community as a whole, which seems to include parents and guardians if they're not on board, what's going on at school. Now, I, I just wonder if they have time to teach anymore. You know, I, the, the obsession with accommodating these, the emotions of these poor kids seems to get in the way of saying, look, you're here, we love you, but you're here to do a job. You know, you're here to learn. You're here to to blossom. To you're not here just to obsess about your your gender identity all day long, and we're not and hide it from your parents. There's got to be a partnership and a, a community of learning here. So it kind of saddens me to see that at a time when students have lost so much ground, and parents are losing confidence in educational institutions, and the curriculum is a mess and doesn't seem to help prepare students to be independent lifetime learners and, and um, competent members of the community, this is where the focus is for our school districts. You know, what um, initially bothers me about that whole thing is the piece of where it's you're going to identify trusted adults that they can have as a support system. Um, Surely, what that actually kind of reminds me of is um, – it's like, you know, your mega church pastors and your beloved teachers and all of those things. And they're the ones that ended up coming out as like, you know, these are the kids that were grooming our children and essentially pushing them where they wanted them to be so that they could use them for their own purpose. I don't like that at all. Yeah. And not, we single out the school district because we're reading their own guidelines here, but other institutions have failed us as well. Mm, I concur. And have undercut parents and undercut these, these links and checks and balances. To to some extent, I mean, there is the idea that you have to, you need to have adults and kids' lives that are going to be there for, that they're safe to go to talk and, Mm -hmm. you know, like the safe to tell kind of thing. But when you start, when you start saying we're not involving parents in this and then, and then it becomes that kind of, that scares me a lot. I know not every child has a good situation at home. Right. We've got a situation where the exception is swallowing the rule here, so. And... (laughs) It's interesting because Thompson School District, at least towards the end of last school year, when everything was coming out with Pooter School District, a lot of people were were wanting to make sure that Thompson School District did not follow Pooter, did not follow some of the other more, you know, Douglas County School Districts, some of the other uh, school districts within the state. And yet they've kind of followed along, but they've just hidden it from the public, where you have to actually go and do some digging to find out this information. This is kind of a theme here today, isn't it, Alex? <laughs> what, government not trusting its people? <laughs> I mean, I would guess that these guidelines and these plans are not original to the school district. I think there are people well embedded in the state and federal education bureaucracies and in education schools that have pushed this along and have templates for any school district that's ready to get on board. Yeah. And it's interesting where we have our public education, where the whole point of education is to be able to teach a kid how to learn. At least that's what I believe education should be is to teach a child how to learn and to develop that growth. But yet most of our public education is all about regurgitation is here's the information we want you to know, and you can regurgitate it onto a test. We'll give you a grade, but you don't have to understand how to actually learn or to develop a a wanting to learn and to explore and wanting to understand what it is that's being taught. I think the uh, 
computer-driven, worksheet-driven classrooms have, have made that problem even worse. It's hard just to get a hold of a novel and read it at your own pace and go back to it, or even to have a textbook you can page through and look back at. It just seems like there's a, a rut and you respond on the keyboard. And I'm sure the good folks at Google have, aren't gathering data on all these consumers <laughs> through the Chromebooks they thoughtfully provided. But, uh, uh, no, definitely not. No. So. That's why we have to tell our kids things like uh, you have an internet agreement and you have to be able to – you cannot access certain sites. Right. And I told my kids, like, listen, be very careful what you look up. Right. Like, Think about the phrase for a second. And then Google it. <laughs> it's the world we live in. It is. Yeah. yeah it's, uh... In the last two years, it's the world we live in now. I, I agree with that. But the last two years is, has shine, uh, has really shown a spotlight on our education system with in-home learning. Because now at that point in time when parents all of a sudden came into the classroom, now they started to see exactly what was being taught to the students, how students were interacting with teachers. I know my own daughter with her teacher um, – not last year, but the year before, I was frustrated with how the teacher even spoke to my child mm. and that this wasn't a a new situation. This is something that the district had known for many, many years about with many, many students. And yet it wasn't until all of a sudden we were sitting in the classroom with our with our kids that we started to see and understand exactly what is being done and what's being taught to our students. Yeah, I it's too bad. I know there are heroic teachers out there, although I'm having been a teacher and having uh, a mother and a grandfather who taught, I'm also, you know, I can, I'll give the greatest credit to the good teachers, but I'll be tough on the bad ones because I know they're not all heroes, right? And, but I think they're struggling against the tide to really uh, trigger curiosity and genuine learning and genuine deep knowledge. And I also think you need to have some some facts and some context to really exercise that creativity and that desire to know. I mean, a lot of kids really want to hold on to facts. And so they need to have that body of facts, but then be taught to say, where do you go from there? How do you, where does this come from? How are these things linked? How does this build on this? So just learning how to learn, if that just means empty head with no facts and, but I know how to adapt to any situation you know, as kids get mature, they need to have context. They need to have the mental furniture that can take new impressions in in a sensible way and then gradually rearrange and improve that furniture maybe, not just be led down a path, led down a rut to to have the right attitudes and, and know what they're supposed to do to be drones in this world. They need to be informed, creative citizens. Critical thinking. Absolutely. You know, that's I, – I had somebody ask me if you can teach that. No, but I can give you the tools how to figure out how to do it. You know, but critical thinking is something I think all of our kids are lacking at this point. Well, I'm kind of an optimist deep down, though. (laughs) People are so resilient. I mean, we find a way through these nonsense periods, and uh, I just think it's tough for the kid going through it right now. I mean, what what an ordeal for someone entering adolescence in the last couple years, right? And just what we've buffeted them with and... I think we really need to kind of make a world that's a little more sensitive to them and not just to us being scared in the basement, but the the joy and the life and the complexity that these kids need to experience. Where do we go from here? And the reason why I ask this question is you have a further division within our world right now. You look at the number one documentary that was put out by 
was it Matt Walsh of What is a Woman? And that one created an awful lot of controversy because it, and even our newest Supreme Court justice couldn't answer what is a woman when she was being interviewed for the job. And when you have policies like these being put into place at our lowest level of education, mm-hmm. when you can't define simple terms, you, you, I liked what you were saying as far as being able to, to provide facts. When the facts keep changing, or at least the definition of words keep changing, right. where do we go from here with, with our kids and with our education system? Reality always reasserts itself. I mean, I think we're going to go through a time of turmoil because we have elites that are increasingly divorced from any consequence for their actions. Yeah. I mean, there's no accountability whether you leave $80 billion in military equipment behind in Afghanistan or uh, you make a giant mess of the education system or you're completely wrong on public health issues for two years and then reverse yourself quietly and say, sorry. You know, there just has to be some sense of reality will intrude. We have to be humble in the face of that. If we make mistakes, we've got to admit it and move on. And we've got to push the incompetent and the self-serving aside and have people with good judgment fill the vacuum again. Easier said than done, but I was a history teacher. You know, we, <laughs> things come and go. Yes. We couldn't agree on what a person was before the Civil War. Yeah, right. very true. Then we go through eras where we're, we're just so angry over things like tariffs and tax rates and think, okay, so we had 98% in common and we had such struggle over that, but now mm-hmm. the division seems so deep, but eventually – you can't live a, can't live a fantasy forever. We'll have a wake up call. I think that's a good point to transition to our, our next topic of student loans. The very <laughs> uncontroversial. What a good investment. <laughs> the very uncontroversial topic of student loans and student loan forgiveness. Now, if you don't know, uh, the Biden administration has put forward a plan to be able to forgive student loan debt. Uh, ten, and again, keep in mind this is only federal student loan debt. It's 10000 of federal student loan debt. If you were a Pell Grant recipient, then that gets increased another 10000 to a total of 20000 that will be forgiven. Uh, as long as you are making under, for a single person, under $125,000 a year or a couple under $250,000 a year. The question that I've been asked more times than, <laughs> than I thought I could be within uh, since this news uh, came out was how is this even legal and is it legal? Now I understand that this isn't exactly the type of law that you you practice, but I do want to pick your brain on it. So you pulled some lawyer off the street to ask if <laughs> <laughs> essentially you have a better understanding of it than I do. Well, let me let me just say that uh, don't respect lawyers too much. The law, the majesty of the law, the due process, the, the right to equal treatment under the law, these things are all much bigger than lawyers. So we all have a responsibility in upholding those things and maintaining them. Um, and yeah, I am a provincial lawyer, a generalist, but I, I have some thoughts on that and some thoughts about the this policy in particular and uh, about student loan forgiveness in general. Um, I don't... I'm very quaint, right? I'm with Alexander Hamilton. I like to think that the legislature is supposed to express the will of the people and make its laws. The executive is supposed to represent force and drive to carry out those laws with dispatch 
and um, wisdom. I know these terms sound archaic now, don't they? And the judiciary <laughs> is supposed to be res- sit in reserve and look and say, well, is the law being applied correctly and do- or does it apply – excuse me, does it correspond with the supreme organic law, the regime law like the constitution? Those things can't be hermetically sealed, but we've kind of opened a big breach and let the executive branch effectively make policy and make law. Um, I think they've gone too far in this one because there are some really clear limits built into law that I've reread on when the debt – when debts can be forgiven. Um, there also is a – the government is enjoined to aggressively collect these debts if they're not paid. So why would you have an arbitrary program that says, why 10000 Why not 30000 Why not only 500 why not go back and refund people who already paid their, their debts back? I don't think the executive should have the power to do this without enabling legislation that lets it happen. But there are two problems here. Um, and I – go ahead. I mean to jump – keep going. Uh, if you wouldn't mind taking a moment and diving in because the, essentially what they're using or how they're getting around the law and allowing the administration to be able to do this via executive order is through an emergencies act where – if the whole point of the act itself was that if there, God forbid, was a nuclear bomb that dropped on a city, that all of a sudden the federal government could come in and within a, a radius around the city suspend all payments, suspend everything, forgive debt, whatever it may be, to help in dealing with that major situation. And now they've kind of taken it and tweaked it and made it work for this scenario am i am i wrong in my thought process on that well they're actually extremely broad legislative acts that allow that kind of incredible authority to be exerted by the executive in a true emergency eventually you think the courts as they've done in the public health context will say wait a minute uh emergencies can't be perpetual there has to be a balancing act here eventually and then we end up with exactly what happened with the EPA, where you had the Supreme Court um, on, what was that, June 28th, that essentially tried to restrict the EPA. And then they passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which gave the EPA all of those powers now mm-hmm. under the law. So now you're talking about the difference between whether policy is good or bad or whether or not it's <laughs> constitutional. So it's now constitutional. Whether it's a good policy or not, I don't know. But Congress has really abrogated its responsibility to make laws. I mean, too much of Congress is let's have hearings on the other guys when we're in power and they're not, or let's own everybody on social media and grandstand to protect my my reelection. But we haven't had a coherent budget process for decades. Um, we haven't had the quiet backbenchers in Congress who work to develop expertise and then um, – rise in the committee and have knowledge to deal with agencies, deal with foreign policy, deal with key government contractors and and come up with good policy and good legislation as a result. And we have an executive that is – agencies in the executive have pushed their authority out as far as they can. Interesting signs on that. As a non-expert, I still know that uh, Justice Gorsuch is kind of interesting nexus on this because he has said this has gone too far where we simply – Congress drops the ball, tells an agency to fix a problem, and the agency's policymaking and rulemaking is so broad, it really has the effect of making laws and making overall policy to deal with that area. The traditional view until 
1935, I guess, was Congress cannot ever delegate its authority to make law and make general policy. You can set up an agency, but you've got to direct it to what the law and the policy is, and then it can implement that. It can use its judgment in different ways. Well, that's eroded since 1935 to where if the agency's policies make any sense at all, the courts will usually uphold it, even if Congress gave this huge grant of authority. There is sign of a backlash, which I think to a degree is really welcome, to say, Congress, you've got to do your job. You can't just say, agency, fix this problem however you want. You've got to say, this is the policy we're writing into law. Now you do have a lot of authority and um, discretion to implement it. Sorry, that's that's kind of the yeah. bigger bigger picture here, I think. Yeah. Of course, no, with student good. loans, I, you know, I, I don't have this boomer take, Alex, that I work my way through school. You kids <laughs> can't. I mean, <laughs> they've got a terrible burden here, a, an inferior product that's priced. It, it's gone up in price 15 times while wages have gone up three or four times. Yeah. You know. Well, we had done a – I think this was back in March when we did a an episode where our main story was on student loans. And it was in that episode that I, I went into great detail as far as the predatory aspect of student loans mm-hmm. and where where the change really took place. And I, and I believe that the change really took place at, at – 2000 2001 it was right during the tech um the tech bubble bust Mm -hmm. and they essentially used student loans to create a new economy where all of a sudden if you wanted to have a job if you wanted to be successful you got to go to college and they started especially towards the millennial generation said you have to go to college in order to be successful in this world and so people started going to college and the student loans became more and more predatory and then in 2005 it was codified by congress that student loans are one of the i think taxes and student loans are the only debts that you cannot it's unbelievable any real reform would start with making student loans dischargeable in bankruptcy like any other normal Mm -hmm. debt Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah and at that point in time, so in 2005, when that was codified, now we have really two generations of college graduates that are stuck with loans that are incredibly predatory. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they're predatory is they're a negative AM loan. If you are on an income-based repayment, the remainder of your payment is going on to the balance of your loan mm-hmm. every single month. Mm-hmm. And so your balance goes up even though you're making a payment. And who's the only lender for student loans now, Alex? The government. Interesting. So it bans this in the private sector or severely restricts it. Yes. But when it is the sole game in town, this is okay to do, to keep handing money to higher education institutions. And it gets even worse with the fact that student loan repayment was actually worked into Obamacare, into the Affordable Care Act, where how they were offsetting some of the overall cost of the Affordable Care Act was through student loan There's repayments. There's a stream of income that we, we know is going to come in, right? The, exactly. Yeah. And so it is a horrific situation that really the government developed on its own and everybody has kind of played into. Mm-hmm. And now they're at a point where enough people, enough millennials and enough Gen Z are starting to get into Congress and saying, hey, you guys basically screwed over two generations. We're going to deal with this. And the only way that they're coming about, I, I don't agree with what Biden did with the $10,000, $20,000. What they should have done, and again, this is my opinion, 
and I talked about this when we talked about student loans, is they should have brought everyone's balance back to what their initial starting balance was. Mm -hmm. So if you took out $50,000 and you currently owe $75,000 on those loans, bring it back to $50,000 and then at that point in time, take five grand off of that. Hmm. So because you've been making payments, if you can show a track record that you've been making payments for four years, then we'll go ahead and bring you down to your balance and then take five grand off of that. So now you can see that it's that you actually are paying down this debt. But then in addition to it, make sure that every single student loan, federal student loan and private, you cannot have a negative amortization on it. Why not get the federal government out of the business and make the loans dischargeable in bankruptcy, right? So they're more like normal loans and lenders have to make reasonable choices or get even more radical because who's benefited from this? I mean, the expansion of higher education, of higher education administrators, not so much professors. There's a terrible caste system among professors. There's the adjuncts who do almost all the teaching and there's the elect of um, tenure track professors who Mm -hmm. do ever less and a huge expansion of administrators and enormous expansion in the expense and the tuition that's charged. My alma mater charges $60,000 a year. Yeah. I'm glad I was a scholarship student even back then. But Well, and that would be the other thing that I would do. And they have, I think, more of the ability, especially the federal government, because they are federal student loans. Every single institution, higher education institution, should be a co-signer on every single student loan. I like that. And at that point in time, if you have not, if you have not, um, if you don't have a job in your area of study, and you have not started repaying those loans within two years, that debt falls on the university. Well, I'm a liberal arts guy, so I know you don't always end up in your <laughs> working your area of study. And if you're a competent person, you can find all kinds of options. So I'm not maybe that goes too far because I don't think education is just about job training. But I do think these institutions need to have more of a, more skin in the game, and not just profit from these these subsidies. I also wonder why there's so little diversity in higher education. Why is the model so much the same for everybody? Maybe the the student loan racket has helped create that. But there are, there are a few colleges like um, Berea College in Kentucky, the College of the Ozarks in Missouri, that give a good liberal arts and practical education, depending on the track you take. Students come out with no debt. They work the whole time they're there. These are work colleges. And you think there'd be a 200, 300, 400 of these, and there are like 10 in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got to do something that encourages more diver- more real diversity in higher ed, uh, more de- maybe delivering a stripped-down product that students don't want to pay for the, the fancy student centers and the, uh, the recreational centers and all the extras that go into the overpriced tuition. Let's get creative out there <laughs> and deliver a good education for a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. What, you mean a brand-new football stadium on campus isn't a good investment? Um, some of us thought so at the time, but, you know. Sorry to put you on the spot on that one. <laughs> but I'm not an alumnus of that school, so. I have no, I have so, no skin in the game, I guess. So, that's so going back to this executive order, in, in your opinion, is it, is it constitutional? Is it legal? Do you foresee a major battle coming on that very question, and will it end up at the Supreme Court? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, there'll be a court battle, surely, but I think eventually the only solution is for Congress to say, let's reform the system. 
let's do our job. Let's actually pass uh, new legislation that deals with new realities. It's a very simplistic answer. I like it. The problem is by the time <laughs> it works its way through, you often have a new administration anyway, and it, yes. it yeah. becomes moot. You know, um, Instead of just waiting for the courts to grind it out and new political season to come upon us, I wish Congress would just step up and, and do it. Well, and that brings uh, another question is the fact that if there is a new administration come in in 2024, and then at that point in time, with it being an executive order, can they reverse that and what does that look like? Well, yeah, of course the new president can reverse an executive order. I mean a lot of uh, President Trump's cheerleaders were crestfallen to find that that's – if you live by executive order, you die by executive order. Yeah. You know? President Biden was ready with a whole stack of uh, new executive orders to sign. So the grown-up thing to do is to make Congress work and to build coalitions in Congress and to say we need a better policy and we're going to implement it. But now I'm getting a little too optimistic, I'm afraid. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, especially in this day and age. It is, uh, it's interesting what's going on, and you made mention of it uh, earlier, where instead of actually doing their jobs, they spend so much time putting hearings together about the, the people that they dislike or they don't agree with. Uh, Is, are multiple impeachment proceedings going to become the new norm whenever <laughs> the president and the Congress are of different parties now? I mean, it's it's a sad spectacle. It is. And I'm sorry, I'm debating if I should bring this up or oh, not. <laughs> uh -oh. No, it's... Um, we're, what, 74 days away from the midterm elections right now, and I'm, a, I'm an independent. I'm a registered independent. I ran for Congress as an independent, and there is one choice to me for the American people in the midterms, and it's to vote out every single incumbent. Get them out of there. There are 53 in the House and the Senate that are not running for re-election. But everyone else, with the exception of one race, and it's Florida's 23rd district, it, that during uh, the redrawing of all of the um, the districts, that the 23rd and 25th district got redrawn in such a way that the 23rd district is two incumbents running, a Republican and a Democrat, and they believe it was the Democrat that got redistrict into mm. 23 and out of 25. That is the only race – in America that should have an incumbent in it because then at that point in time that to me that's the only way that we the people actually have the power to take back Congress and it means Republicans voting for a Democrat maybe for the first time in their life or Democrats voting for a Republican for the first time in their life but if there was less than 10 people 10 incumbents that actually got elected all of a sudden we take back the power we the people take back the power and say, you're going to do some of the stuff that we actually want and that we agree with. The fact that 87% of this nation believes in term limits for Congress and the Senate, and yet that never gets brought up, that never gets passed. Sure. So I'm sorry to go off on a tangent. <laughs> well, politics is still, even with the nationalization of elections and the sharpening of ideological divisions, it's still local in many ways. And a lot of people will hate what Congress does as a whole, but think, boy, but she's great. You know, I, I know her. I've, I've been to, you know, it's so 
it's tough because when Congress acts collectively, it can be a disaster and it's more ideological than ever, but people still may have a connection to their particular representative. It's the not my guy. It's everybody else, but it's not my guy. I know. So, That's what people say about lawyers too, Alex. You know? <laughs> well, I can't stand lawyers, but I like my lawyer. <laughs> so speaking of elections, let's actually dive into uh, the overall upcoming election because this will have an impact, um, not only at the state Senate level or at the senator level. So you have Michael Bennett versus uh, Joe O'Day. You have governor as far as Jared Polis versus Heidi Ganahl. But then on the local level, we're seeing some different things come out where even Fort Collins has a special election on November 8th on a few different amendments. One of them is raising the um, – increase the overall counselor comp, so the pay that they pay each uh, council person as well as the mayor. The second one is changing the election day because currently – um, currently Fort Collins is set up with an April election where they would change it to match the federal election. And then the last one, which kind of got me is they actually have it on the ballot for ranked choice voting. And it's the first big city within Northern Colorado that is actually putting ranked choice voting onto the ballot. I wanted to get your thoughts on it. I have mixed feelings about it. I, I, I guess I like the point you've made to me in conversation that it allows a greater uh, variety of perspectives to have a chance of being expressed. I do think it also reflects a resignation that that the candidates are going to be ideological and will encourage them to emphasize their ideological differences early on. And so it's always a mixed bag. When do you have to moderate your ideological impulses and reach consensus with people? Do you do it before the fact where you – sort of assemble a coalition of people under a banner and say, you're not going to agree with me on everything, but if I'm first past the post, you know, I'll try to balance all these things when I'm there. Or do you say, I feel intensely this way to make sure people know your ideological bent, and then after you're elected, make those compromises with other people in the elected body? So I think if you focus on expressing more points of view and who gets elected, it looks better, but you still have the same problem of governance, which is – once you have those different points of view, how do people find a way to make an actual policy and make compromises and reach some sort of decent consensus? So it's not going to solve that problem. Yeah, and that's – we are kind of already see that though within the primary and general election because in the primary election, you're just going after your side's voters and you see more extreme points of view, more extreme ideology come out in the primary. And then all of a sudden, as soon as they win the primary, then they try to pull it back mm -hmm. to be able to win the general. Well, we've emphasized the caucus system a little bit. Yeah. So for good or for ill, that's minimized a little bit what the activists in each party can do. And we allow people to vote. I mean, if I'm you and I are both registered independents, uh, unaffiliated, and we can pick which political primary we vote in. So we can be strategic that way too. I don't know if that's better or not. Hmm. I'm not an expert on Fort Collins politics though. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> don't you think in general though that city council, just so they can stand up to the staff a little bit, city council and mayor should be paid a little bit more? I do. For all the time they spend? I do. And it also allows those that have a feeling of not being able to run for that office because they don't want to give up uh, the extra hours at work or mm -hmm. something of that sort. It opens up and broadens out the the pool of people that can 
go ahead and run. Sure. Not just people independently wealthy or retired, but yeah. people from all walks of life, potentially. Yeah. I think so. Mm-hmm. Well, you know that when people try to move elections from off-cycle to the main general election, the idea is to have greater participation and higher turnout. And sometimes that's for noble reasons. Sometimes it's for very uh, pragmatic political reasons to think the, the pool of voters will be better for my agenda. So. Yeah, it's the down ballot. Yeah. And you figure if at that point in time, if you're a registered Democrat or a registered Republican, you're going to vote in the federal election or the state election. At that point in time, if you're going to vote in either of those elections, then you're going to be able to vote down ballot as well. I should know this, but Loveland City Council races are officially nonpartisan. <laughs> on, the ballot, anyway. on the ballot. On the ballot. Allegedly. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's another. But in Fort Collins, do they show an affiliation on the ballot, or are they? I don't believe so. I didn't think so either, but I wasn't sure. No, they're supposed to be nonpartisan, but you can tell very, <laughs> very yeah. much so. As not only in Fort Collins, but Loveland and most areas, how partisan local politics truly is. Understood. What are your thoughts on some of the other races that are taking place, as far as, in particular, the governor race? Because this is. I, with the Tabor refund and the nice little letter that we received with the Tabor refund, it is fascinating to me with the current Colorado administration how even something that they have been battling since its implementation and trying to get Tabor removed, how they've now all of a sudden taken credit for what Tabor does for the citizens of Colorado. Yeah, that stoked my cynicism a little bit. Um Governor Polis is a master politician. He's very good at assembling coalitions and putting his finger on the right issue. He's also good at backing away from potential traps that might paint him into a more of an ideological mm-hmm. corner. So he's hard to bet against. He's been a great politician with tremendous resources his whole career. I think Heidi Ganahl is an attractive candidate with a good story, and she's energized a lot of people, but the institutional advantages of Governor Polis are too great. I think I'm pretty confident he'll he'll win the election. And what are your thoughts on the Senate race? Pretty much the same, although Michael Bennett is uh, not nearly as uh, good a politician as Jared Polis is. Well, we, I mean, with Bennett, you can just take a look at his presidential run. <laughs> did not catch fire, yeah. but It, it did not. You know what is required to be a senator from Colorado, though? I don't. You have to have done your undergraduate work at Wesleyan University. Oh. <laughs> Interestingly enough, both Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper are, are Wesleyan graduates. So. Huh. Is that a little bit in cahoots? Oh, no. I'm, I'm not trying to be – don't name that the Patterson rule. You can't get elected in this state unless you went to Wesleyan. No, there have been a few counterexamples to the rule, but it is interesting. So. That's good. This midterm election is going to be very, very interesting, and uh, I don't know how it's going to pan out. And you have both sides that are kind of pulling back their optimism on how they believe this election is going to turn out. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, activists on both sides will always say never underestimate our ability to uh, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, right? I mean, <laughs> just when you think it's a sure thing that one party is going to do well, it's funny how the trends always seem to reverse a little bit and make it more interesting. So, yeah, yeah I don't have a crystal ball and I don't. I guess if people have an axe to grind, they'll 
they'll push the story they want to hear. But uh, we'll just have yeah. to see. I just would like to see some competence return, and I'm not sure that our regular processes are going to permit that. No, because the unfortunate aspect is most competent people don't want to run. And it, it's it's a bloodbath. When you run for office, it can be a bloodbath. If you're not independently wealthy, you have to fundraise every second of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's not why the right people get into politics, right? So it's it's a tough dilemma. Well, we kind of touched on that last week when we were saying, like, you know, um, AOC and everybody is saying, I'm not going to fundraise all the time. I don't, I don't need to do that, and I'm, I'm tired of it. Mm-hmm. And it's not about re-election. It's about getting things done. So we are starting to see a little bit of it. Well, maybe a new generation will, on, on both sides of the aisle, be a, a good reaction to that. It would be. And it might actually change politics a little bit. Um, you know, there's a, an awful lot of things that have been passed and the amount of money that corporations can put into an election, I have major issue with. Um, you know, this kind of goes back to everybody's talking at both sides about the student loan forgiveness. I, the only part that I'm all right with is the fact that it's actually money going to the citizens instead of the corporations. Mm. We have bailed out the banks. We have bailed, bailed out corporations so many times within this nation that the fact that it's actually going to the people, I can get on board with a little bit. I wish that we could get corporations out of politics. Once you uh, sluice $4 trillion through Washington, D.C., you really can't expect people not to care about directing some of it their way. Yeah. And so you can make those rules, but if you put all that incentive in place, people will find a way to assert their self-interest. Sorry, I mean, I, no. Well, there's – oh, we're never going to – no, we'll find – there are things we can do, but I don't <laughs> think there's any easy solution once you've made – Washington, the nexus of so many things, yeah. everyone's going to want yeah. their hands in that to, to try to change it. So I, a, a radical greater federalism would be a good thing. I mean, it's funny. I tend to be a lot more pro-government the closer – after all the terrible things I said about the city of Loveland. But <laughs> you, know, you, you can actually – if you can look your neighbors in the eye and you can show up at the city council meeting, you can mm-hmm. attend these commissions, you can influence things. But the more of it that just gets vacuumed up to Washington – it's going to be the insiders, no matter whether they're corporations or PACs or some yep. other mysterious uh, agency. They're going to try to direct those funds. So I think the only solution would probably be to push as much as we can back to the states and local government. And we saw the reaction when that happens from the Supreme Court level. <laughs> Depends on the policy, I guess. Yeah, I'd say that's probably heavily weighed on that mm-hmm. policy. So, no, I, I agree with you. Uh, the federal government has gotten far too big. Um, but the word of caution that I have to anybody who is frustrated with the student loan repayment, I understand where you're coming from on that. But if you weren't as frustrated and pissed off at corporations getting four, five, six trillion dollars of our taxpayer money, as you are about 300 billion going back to the citizens, Maybe do a gut check. Fair, fair point. Yeah, I think it was a paltry amount. I think it was an insult. So, awesome. Well, let's get on to the lighter 
side of things. Uh, <laughs> something that we haven't done for a little while is we're uh, going to do Beer of the Week. That's why you invited me back. Okay. That's, absolutely. <laughs> yes. So with Beer of the Week, so we were trying to do Sky Bear, uh, which is a new brewery in Loveland. Um, I had the opportunity to go over to Sky Bear. They have some great beers on tap. Um, they aren't doing to-go beers yet. Not yet. Nope. And so that's something that they're planning to do in the future. But because they aren't doing any uh, to-go beers yet, we do not have any of their beer to sample. However, we have another good Loveland brewery as far as Verboten. And it's been a while since we've had Verboten on. Um, Jen, I'll let you take it away because you picked up the beer for this week. Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, I actually brought a couple of different ones. I'll let you do the two fives. But I brought Thank You Give Something Orange because I think it's a good fallback. Um, my very favorite beer that they did was the lemon lemon wheat what was it the the lemongrass yeah the lemongrass and it was <laughs> called the five second frencher but thinking of something orange it's pretty similar to that so it's a um it's got orange and honey in there um man i love this beer it's a wheat beer um the back says an american wheat with natural orange blossom honey and orange puree for a bright citrus flavor summer all year long that's probably why i like it but it it's really good it's it's crisp it's got I mean, it's definitely a sweet beer because the honey is in there, but it's not so overwhelming that that's all you taste. But th- it is one of my favorites. What do you think? You've had this one before, I'm oh, sure. It's good. Yeah. I mean, you can't go wrong with Josh and Angie. I mean, our neighbors downtown. But uh, I'm not usually a wheat beer fan, but Verboten just seems to make the best of any style it tries. And I oh. think of this as post-lawnmower uh, time <laughs> in the backyard. One of these oh, yeah. is really good. I'll let Alex take was, it, but I two fives is a big favorite of mine, actually. So yeah, I was actually going to say the same thing, and I was looking for the ABV on this, and I it's five point two um, for thinking of something orange. Yeah, right there with you as far as after you've mowed the lawn, ninety <laughs> degrees outside, ice cold, perfect. Oh yeah. So, but the other one that you did bring, and this is one that I actually had not had before, and so I'm I'm grateful that you brought it, which mm-hmm. is two fives. It's a West Coast IPA, 6% alcohol by volume. And two fives is our American West, American West Coast IPA. This beer has lots of bitterness up front and ends with plenty of citrus, tropical fruits, and a little pine on the nose. Thanks to uh, Nugget, Amarillo, and Simcoe hops, this beer has attitude. Uh, you ask, uh, this beer has attitude. You ask for a taste and it says fist ready. All I got is two fives. <laughs> so <laughs> I love it. It's good. And this is, this is a wonderful beer. I, you know, for me, the hoppier, the better. And, uh, just even the initial notes, but then how it actually, it, it's to me a very dynamic beer with how it changes on the back end. You know, but uh, since this is one of your favorites, you, I you said it best. I mean, bold, but balanced. You get all the, sometimes you get this excessive hoppiness. It's like, how citrus can we make this or how intense? Can we emphasize just one note? Mm-hmm. And just this just has the body to stand up to that. And like you said, kind of a, a rolling symphony of uh, of taste on the tongue. It's it's a great beer. So. Now, Jen, being the fact that you aren't an IPA, even though you like most of the IPAs that we have, <laughs> what are your thoughts on this one? <laughs> most of them. I love this. It's it's fantastic. The hop on the front was a little heavy on the front, but with that citrus kind of balance in there, you got like three layers of flavor as you took a drink. It was, okay, there's the beginning. You get these hops, then you, it kind of backs off, and then you know, you get that bitterness at the end. I typically don't like bitterness, but on this one, it works. Mm-hmm. So I do like it. I think it's good. 
Awesome. So if you have not been to Verboten in a while, I highly encourage you to, to head down there. Uh, have a couple of beers in the tap room. I love going to their tap room. Uh, it's just a great place to hang out. And then, of course, they do can as well. So grab a, a six-pack mm-hmm. or, or four-pack of beers to take home with you afterwards. Yeah. So, well, John, Mark, we appreciate you coming back. And uh, I always enjoy having conversations with you. You two are so much fun. So it's good to be here and, and then go back and forth for a bit. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So, well, thank you again. And as always, I'm your native, Alex Johnson. And I'm your transplant, Jen Bryant. We'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.